News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here this week with Katie Honan of the city in Queens. Hello. Hey, Harry. Thanks for, uh, thanks for connecting. I don't know what I'm thanking you for, to be honest. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> thanks it's one for of those nothing. weeks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so we've got a uh, show this week. Uh, obviously, it's the, the anniversary of September 11th. The 20th anniversary is on Saturday. And we have a show that, that's sort of connected about undermarked deaths, uh, about nine deaths so far this year at Rikers, about deaths in the construction industry. And we've just had a week in New York. And Katie, you've been all over the uh, city. I think all five boroughs, you said, covering this, uh, the aftermath of 13 flood deaths in Manhattan, almost all of them people who'd been living in basement apartments. Um, can you fill us in just on, on the weekend news as you've been covering it, uh, how the uh, the mayor is doing and taking accountability, how the new governor is doing, whether there's any sense we're going to be better prepared next time and just where things are at? Yeah, so a, a week ago today, uh, Wednesday, was um, Ida came through and we had a forecast of rain and, and heavy rain. Um, but it just did not seem as serious as, as it turned out to be. And what we saw was actually historic rainfall over the course of two hours, more than what we'd seen two weeks prior when we had uh, Tropical Storm Henri come through and uh, Mayor de Blasio still threw an outdoor concert. But um, because of this rainfall, um, and you know what we saw, and I grew up by the coast, so you're used to flooding to some degree and coastal flooding, but what we saw was flooding from the sewers, people who live in neighborhoods that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be prone to flooding. But as you know, I reported last week, um, the, the map was actually flagged by Alyssa Katz, an editor at the city, and I know she's been on, but um, the city released a map in May that showed neighborhoods and blocks and homes that with even moderate rainfall, um, they could see flooding. And when you, you put in the addresses of where 13 people died, um, you know, all but one, one woman died in her car on the Grand Central Parkway. I don't know the, the truth. They found her the next day in the burnt out car, but everyone else died at home. And of those, all but one person lived at a place that this map showed was prone to flooding. You know, the story in Woodside where a two-year-old drowned with his parents in the basement, you know, I spoke to the neighbor upstairs who just said how horrific it was. They were calling and, and begging for help, but they couldn't get out. Um, so that home was on the map. Um, the home in Flushing on Peck Avenue, which is, you know, a few blocks that are in the middle of Casena Park, um, prone to flooding. So this is things that it's it was not a surprise. You know, the mayor, he likes to default to it's all climate change because it helps deflect the city's own failure in, in fixing these problems. And it's a, it's a, monumental task. It's an expensive task. And it's also, uh, you know, I talked to one elected official who said, look, you know, sewers are just not sexy. You've never been to a ribbon cutting for a sewer. Um, but it's an incredibly important thing. You know, the sewers that we have are, were built a hundred years ago when we didn't have more than 8 million people. So that's been the issue. And um, it's an issue of illegal basement apartments. 
um, which we'll get into, you know, you, you know who's living in illegal basement apartments. It's oftentimes undocumented residents or it's obviously people who can't afford more expensive apartments. And even the landlords and the owners of these homes, they have to rent out basements because a lot of times they can't afford their homes without it. You have neighborhoods, especially in Southeast Queens, which two people drowned um, in their home in Hollis, some of the highest property taxes in the city. Um, so it's it's a lot of issues and um, it's supposed to rain tonight, not as much, but you know the mayor does a thing where he throws everything against the wall and he says, we're gonna fix this, we're gonna do it. We're gonna change from now on. Um, but the bottom line is there are things that I guess could have been changed that hadn't been. And unfortunately, you know, we have 13 people who died. Horrific, you know, and, and someone asked me last week, well, why couldn't they just get out? And I remember hearing these stories after Hurricane Sandy, you know, until you've been in that experience, you don't know what it's like, but usually when the water rushes in that quickly, even if you have two means of egress in a basement apartment, they like seal shut. You have to break down doors and stuff to get out. And it's horrible. I mean, we saw videos from New Jersey of, of that. I'm sure everyone's seen it. The video of the, you just watch the basement wall collapse and it fills up within a few seconds. It's, you know, these are the circumstances in which people died in, which are pretty horrific. And in, again, in neighborhoods that I never would have imagined would have these issues. So, so we've had two hours with the most rainfall ever recorded in an hour in new yeah. york city mm -hmm. two weeks apart first with uh henry henry and then <laughs> and then with ida i remember tropical storm henry when it still looked like it might be a hurricane cuomo was leaving office hours later doing his last man of action briefing sleeves rolled up ready to go. I'm still the person in charge. You have to be careful. Yeah. And that shtick can be exhausting, but you compare that to de Blasio outside at his homecoming concert, as the rain's coming in, <laughs> as lightning is coming down, as they're canceling the, the concert and telling people to leave the park saying, hang on, hang on, we're going to get this thing going again, which of course he, he also had telecast on CNN. And it, it's sort of remarkable how this happened. What, what's grabbed me, and you were just referring to this with de Blasio, is the extent to which he's been so passive voiced about some of these things. It's, hey, this is climate change. I'm just the mayor. What can I really do? There are these 500,000 people maybe living in basement apartments. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's a tough issue. And implicitly saying, I'll be gone in three months. And Eric Adams can worry about that. At the same time, we've had these nine deaths so far this year at Rikers. We're going to talk in a bit with George Joseph, who has a Big new report out with Ruvain Blau, George Joseph of WNYC, and Gothamist Ruvain Blau of the city, who was on last week, uh, about how much incidents of uh, self-harm are up there. Nine deaths so far this year. Uh, the latest just reported today, Wednesday. Um, and when de Blasio was asked about that, he says, well, it's really tough. Uh, there's a, we have to fix the whole culture at the uh, Department of Corrections, which, again, is a fancy way of saying this is a big problem. I'll be gone soon. Someone else is going to deal with this. And I understand he, he's leaving and that the politics yeah. are a little different, but it, it's very dispiriting to just see the, the, the mayor shrug like that. that That's life. These things are bigger. Yeah. As people die. Yeah. And I, I, he look and it's true. These are difficult tasks. You know, how do you fix the issue of sewers or even how do you fix the issue of legal basements? And, and you can't stop the rain. Nobody can. But he has tried to tackle big issues before. It just seems to be what is politically interesting to him. 
you know, I mean, we joke about how many task forces he sets up. Um, and he set one up for this, which I thought was the mayor's office of resiliency. But I think especially when it comes to what's happening on Rikers Island, this is this is everything that he he's in charge of. And he still um kind of shrugs. And as you say, you know, he'd rather um, you know, the morning of the storm last week, that press briefing he uh, spent God knows how long um, pontificating about the abortion bill um, in Texas, which is, of course, is important, but this isn't your MSNBC audition. This is your daily briefing for the people that you're the mayor of. So perhaps he could have spent a little bit more time. He did talk about the storm, but it was mostly as an afterthought. Um, so yeah, that is, and look, the media is to blame too. To some degree, we, perhaps we should have warned about this more, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the mayor did, again, I will, I, I, I tweeted about this, but the U.S. Open still happened. I know they have a roof on that stadium, but that's a park that floods. And the NYPD made 20 rescues in Queens and 18 were at the U.S. Open. So that says a lot. So maybe, you know, I asked the mayor this week, would he perhaps step in and say, you have to cancel this event because it's not about being inside the stadium. It's how do you get out of a park that's prone to flooding? How do you get home if the Grand Central is flooded? How do you get home if the seven train isn't running? You strand hundreds, uh, potentially thousands of people in a park. But that's that's my rant on that. So joining us now live on Zoom is return guest George Joseph of WNYC and Gothamist. Um, George, welcome back. Uh, take us through what's happening inside of uh, Rikers and the city jails, uh, where we're having all these reports. Graham Raymond's had some exceptional ones at the uh, Daily News uh, about how inmates are all but just being abandoned and sort of left to their own devices, locked up to run these places. And why this is uh, happening now, uh, what the mayor and the new uh, corrections commissioner is trying to uh, do about it and uh, sort, sort of the, the state of things. And with this backdrop, by the way, of a plan to close Rikers that for quite a while the city was putting out updates about every three or four months. I believe it's been over a year since we've had one of those. Uh, the virus has interceded, but, but it's not clear what's going to happen. That seems like another mess that's going to get left to the next mayor to uh, sort out when he comes in next year. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, the last few weeks have been overwhelming in terms of reporting because, you know, Ruvain Blau and I from the city were trying to work on this sort of big picture piece about rising self-harm at Rikers in the city jails. And then I kept, kept, kept getting pulled away because there was another death, another death. I'd get another text and you know, another death, trying to confirm it with DOCA, try, trying to get details. And then yesterday when we published this sort of long form piece on numbers internally showing that um, attempts and rates of uh, self-harm, self-injurious acts in jails have been going up quite dramatically since the pandemic, yet another death happened. And word is it was an overdose. Um, so we're really seeming to reach like a, a boiling point right now in terms of fatalities um, in city jails. Um, however, that trend has been fairly clear over the last year, and the city seems to have done little about it. And in fact, 
um, exacerbated the problems in some ways. So there's a chart there that shows the rate of self-harm and it's something like 25 to 40 incidents of self-harm each quarter. And then the number starts going up. Uh, COVID arrives in the city, it hits 50, and it just keeps climbing from there. And as of June, it's up to 95, um, which is a really dramatic spike, you know, like more than doubling. Um, We've also had, I believe, Stami had the total wrong, five suicides already this year, which is more than the last couple of years combined. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to double check the number, but certainly suicides are up. And it was um, nine total deaths of all kinds in DOC custody that DOC is sort of admitting was within their custody. There are more depending on how you count hospital discharges and that kind of thing. But certainly, yes, certainly a step backwards for DOC in that regard. So there's some really striking reporting in your piece. Uh, I'm hoping you can talk about the uh, climate of despair you've described as the uh, number of people who have, locked, who have been locked up has gone up over the course of the pandemic following an initial wave of people being let out and why the uh, Department of Corrections seems to be having such a hard time getting a hold of their staffing issues to, to deal with this, where the people are coming in, are working triple shifts, 24-hour days, and are just exhausted. And uh, they have not seemed to be able to uh, resolve that and get on a steadier footing. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated picture, and I don't think it's just DOC as an institution's fault. There's multiple actors here that are all sort of making individual decisions that are, you know, fueling this crisis. So if we step back a second, um, sort of towards the beginning of the pandemic, as you alluded to, the city, including the mayor and district attorneys, or, or the, maybe the courts, I should say, um, were uh, pursuing certain decarceral initiatives to try to lower the jail population because of the dangers of the virus. Um, but data shows that those efforts more or less slowed down within a couple months um, of sort of New York starting to, you know, get through the worst part of the pandemic, um, that sort of math, mass death time that we were in last year. And that was also when, when shootings were starting to rise in a, a sort of significant and disturbing way, right? Yes. So sh sh shootings, you know, everyone remembers the sum summer last year when shootings we're going up, which would you know help account for increased admissions. Um, in addition, the bail reform law had been tweaked as of April of last year to include more um, sort of bail eligible charges, including for some misdemeanors that weren't previously bail eligible. So there's both higher crime and more ways for people to be coming into the jail system as a result of that. Nonetheless, um, as I was saying, initially there was some hope for people um, who were being re released in that early part of the pandemic. That hope fades away as the city's initiatives on decarceration slow down. From the beginning of the pandemic, though, a ton of the services in the jails, like arts programs, therapeutic programs, um, barbershop, recreation time, all that stuff, family visits most crucially, is cut off 
because of the disease. And people are being held in their cells for a long, large part of the day. So that's going to fuel increased stress, increased anxiety, increased violence, you know, both between staff and detainees and between detainees themselves. Um, and eventually sort of that initial sort of pandemic moment of we're all in this together. Maybe we're going to get out wears, wears down and, and you, you start to see both, you know, rising self-harm, rising suicides, um, and sort of just rising, uh, dysfunction in the jails. Um, fast forward a few months later, um, DOC starts to have major problems with absenteeism, people calling out sick. And I will say there was an absenteeism spike, understandably, in the beginning part of the COVID pandemic. That goes back down by the summer of 2020, but then it starts to escalate higher and higher um, towards the end of 2020 and going into 2021. Having spoken to some corrections officers who are working in this period in the jails, they sort of described it as like a self-perpetuating cycle where people were burnt out after the pandemic. They didn't want to come into work. Work was hard. The population was increasing. But, you know, if other people started calling out, then their jobs became even worse. Then they have to do more of the double, triple shifts that the union has been complaining about. Um, so there's a collective action problem where, you know, how do you get everyone to sort of work together um, and it's sort of, uh, means that the more people that are, you know, calling out sick, the worse the conditions get both for corrections officers and crucially for detainees who are unable to get very basic services, medications, food, um, housing, you know, getting to places with beds, all that stuff, again, fuels the violence and the self-harm. So one quick follow-up there. The New York Post reported this week that uh, Bill de Blasio is trying to deal with the shortage of corrections officers by releasing another wave of uh, inmates. They, they call it a horde of ex-cons, which I don't think is accurate since most of the people at Rikers have, in fact, not been convicted of anything. Uh, de Blasio uh, has denied that report. Um, do, do you have any sense about whether or not that may be, uh, that, that may be happening, um, whether that might help with some of the issues there, cause other issues around the city, uh, where that stands? I, I didn't see that particular report, and I wasn't at the de Blasio press conference recently about this because we were sort of breaking some of the most recent jail death stories while that was happening. But I will say two things. One is the jail population is largely determined by the courts and district attorneys who are not the mayor's office. However, the mayor's office can act unilaterally to release a certain number of detainees on work release who are serving short-term uh, misdemeanor sentences. And so the mayor's office could release, I think it's about 200-something detainees that way, which could you know, release the population. In addition, advocates in the criminal justice reform world are pushing Governor Hochul uh, to sign the Less is More Act, which could allow for the release of people who are in jail on technical parole violations. Um, and then finally, they're also pushing for district attorneys to sort of reverse course in terms of asking for bail and for judges to sort of reverse course in how high of bails they're setting so that more people are not sent to 
the sort of dangerous, dysfunctional jails. But, you know, that that's so many different institutions, you know, that are all acting under various different incentive structures and pub- points of public pressure. So how that actually happens um, is very unclear to me. And then last thing on my end, I, I know the uh, Board of Correction, which oversees the jail system, put out its own statement, I think, after eight uh after eight deaths inside this year, um, five suicides, saying this is only going to get worse. This came after almost three years through last December with, with no suicides. And they note that, that most of these have happened uh, in the intake areas uh, where people have been waiting for days, uh, often without beds or adequate food. I, I think sometimes water, I know it's very hot there and elsewhere. Why, why has that process been, been so shitty and uh, disruptive? And is there there any sense that might be improving? And what's the Board of Correction asking other authorities to do to help fix this? So we spoke to several people for the story who work in the uh, intake, one of the main intake areas at Rikers, OBCC. And a lot of them argued that, um, you know, earlier this year, after the Board of Corrections actually raised concerns about another intake facility, EMTC, Um, DOC sort of hastily moved the facility to another facility, OBCC, which these staff members arguing is even worse, more cramped and not at all adequate um, to handle the sort of intake with the kind of numbers of people that are being sent into jails right now. And so when you combine the numbers of people who are being sent into jails with the fact that there's not enough staff to process them to get them the things they need, to move them to the places they need to go, um, to sort of just guard the various housing facilities where they are, it leads to all these sort of collateral consequences. And at intake, we see that because people are reporting, including staff members, that detainees are not getting food for long, long stretches of time, that there is excrement on the floors because there's no one to clean it up, that people are uh, who, you know, have mental health issues are just sort of languishing there without access to their medications, which can also cause um, sort of incidents of violence and sort of just general dysfunction. Um, So it's a very hellish scene that um, sources are painting there right now. George, I wanted to ask you too, something else that I'd read, uh, that staffing issue uh, from correction officers I saw that they're now trying to incentivize having retirees come back, paying for their uniforms, other kind of bonuses. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because when I read that, I think this is insane. This is such a huge issue. And obviously yourself and others are writing on it. Uh, But talk about that. And if you know of anyone who's going to come back or anything else you know about um, this, because the staffing issue on Rikers Island especially seems to be dire. Yeah, um, it's always a bad situation when the uh, agency head has to uh, host a press conference saying, please come back to work, (laughs) which is what Vincent Schiraldi had to do yesterday at DOC at Rikers. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely a crisis. Um, The department is offering sort of incentives to try to get people to come back because especially because. Um, sort of hiring new recruits and um, having a new class is not going to immediately get people who know what they're doing there. Mm. Um, But this is a very political issue because uh, 
COBA, the Corrections Officers Union, argues we need more staff members to get a handle on this, which is understandable. They're the, their union. They're supposed to help their members, and they, yeah. they want to grow their union, which totally makes sense. On the other hand, um, you know, decarceral activists are saying, well, if quote-unquote understaffing is the problem, why don't you lower the population so that you bring the ratios down to something that is more manageable for DOC? Mm. So how you actually answer this um, problem of understaffing is is a very political one. And just on the just on that sort of term, I will note that the federal monitor who is currently overseeing New York City jails right now has argued that even if you take into account the sort of mass calling out sick that um, DOC is referring to, the sort of staff to detainee ratio that the New York City jail system has is still better than what other jail systems have across the country. And so the federal monitor argues that um, DOC's problem is that they're not sort of doing a good job of getting people, getting available staff to where they need to go because of mismanagement, because of sort of not having an electronic system to monitor where people are. I mean, keep in mind, in addition to sick leave, there are just members of service that are going AWOL and DOC claims they have no idea where they are. Um, so that shows the sort of level of dysfunction. Recently, Shiraldi, the DOC commissioner, has has said that they've instituted a new policy that requires corrections officers to get uh, doctor's notes from city doctors to be able to call out sick and that that has, to some degree, diminished this problem. We, we need to see sort of greater numbers to see if that trend is, you know, very promising. Um, but you know, that was seen as very insulting to corrections officers as well. So unclear how that, the sort of reaction from corrections officers to that will play out. When I saw the headline, I assumed it was one of these things where, um, you know, someone was leaked, an internal memo. <laughs> and then when I found out it was a press conference held, I, I, I was like, wow, that, that's when you know it's desperate. If it's one of these on the DL things, but that, that was pretty crazy to me. Yeah, definitely. So I, I know the monitor last year, as the population of Rikers was way down, uh, reported that violence there uh, was at an all-time high. And by violence, I mean uh, guards being violent towards inmates. Uh, has, has that gotten more under control? Like, like what's, the, uh, what's the status of that as the... Uh, population of guards actually there on any given day has dropped, but the, the total number, it's like, I think it's more than a one-to-one ratio, right, of, of uh, DOC to inmates at this point. Yeah, I think that, that ratio is about correct. Um, anecdotally, we've definitely heard reports of increasing violence. Um, it's hard for me to compare since we don't have sort of the latest monitor data. They, they come out at regular intervals, so I can't say definitively, but I would imagine that just like with self-harm rates continuing to go up, that just sort of speaks to a kind of dysfunction and anxiety that people have. There is no reason to expect that that wouldn't be the same with violence trends. And the Corrections Union has sort of pointed to some high-profile incidents of violence against staff, um, you know, in addition to violence between detainees. So what are you looking for going forward in your reporting on Rikers and the city jails? What do you expect to happen under the next mayor? And looking at the uh, unexpected closure, announced closure of MCC, the federal prison in Manhattan, 
It's not clear yet where the remaining prisoners there are going to go. They may end up at a MDC in Brooklyn, which is also a, uh, I think the term of art is a uh, dysfunctional shithole. Are there any solutions or improvements on the horizon uh, for people who are locked up in New York, or are these going to be the same endemic problems that people were reporting about 20 and 30 years ago and will be reporting about in 20 or 30 years? I know when MCC closed, excuse me, when MCC opened, by the way, and it was a state-of-the-art prison, I wrote a column about this, the tombs closed at about the same time, which was the uh, city jail in lower Manhattan, where you could basically go right out of your cell and, you know, through a hall and be in court uh, because there was a lawsuit and everyone there got moved to Rikers. Uh, and that dealt with the lawsuit part, uh, but it actually put those prisoners in worse conditions and meant that it was uh, incredibly complicated, as it continues to be, to actually get them to and from the, uh, from their cells to their court appearances. It's harder for people to visit and so on. So it does seem like sometimes we, we decide one of these places is cursed, spend a lot of money on creating new places, and then that place inevitably ends up cursed, you know, uh, wash, repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, sort of what the trends are here are sort of up to external factors that will shape to what extent the various advocacy organizations and um, counter forces are able to sort of project their narratives. So the reason I say that is, you know, when violent crime was consistently going down, you had this very clear trend line where you know the jail population gets lower and lower and lower. You could theoretically close Rikers and you know, have either like the city's plan of uh, borough-based jails with a smaller population. But now what happens to that plan if the population continues to go up? And as the delays in Rikers closure sort of, oh, pushing back a year, pushing back a year, who who's sort of going to have the political will to enforce that that plan actually happens? Right now, when you look at the activist sort of community, given how split it is between sort of the no new jails at all people and the let's close Rikers and have jails that may be better people. It doesn't seem like there's sort of a mass momentum around any one plan and definitely fissures around it. So um, I don't really see a clear sort of um, path forward. I guess one thing that is different that could affect the admissions numbers are the, the sort of momentum around progressive district attorneys. So if Alvin Bragg in Manhattan does come in and is willing to sort of not ask for bail for certain types of charges more so than his predecessor, um, that could make a difference if that sort of pressure continues on Katz and DA Gonzalez in Brooklyn, you know, that could make a difference. But right now, you know, even with allegedly progressive DAs like in place, like in Brooklyn, the jail population does continue to go up. Um, so is there the political will to lower it right now? You know, unclear to me, but potentially if violent crime, especially violent gun crime, does continue to recede after that increase last year, maybe the conditions change for that. I'm not sure. So George, just in the final question, you know, looking ahead to the reforms that are needed, um, how can they be fixed, whether it's a staffing issue or uh, other plans to fix in the in the short term Rikers Island and then eventually these borough-based jails. I mean, where does that reform come in and how can it come in and, and quickly 
because it seems needed immediately. Yeah, so I guess in the immediate term, the question is, how do you get uh, people who are incarcerated the very basic services that they need uh, to sort of survive in our city jails? Um, and in the immediate term, one answer that uh, corrections officers proffer is, we'll get more of us here so that we have enough people to sort of safely guard these housing units to get people, escort them back and forth to their medical appointments to sort of move people to housing assignments so that they can have beds to sleep on. Um, on the other hand, you know, reform progressive advocates would argue, well, if you don't have so many people in the jails in the first place, they can be out with their families getting those basic services. And the few that are there can sort of be handled by whatever staff you have um, on, on the force right now. Um, so, you know, it's a political question, um, how we, how we sort of address this sort of crisis of, you know, so-called understaffing right now. And then in the long term, um, you know, the sort of, um, issues that have been raised by the monitor about sort of staff on inmate violence, um, staff on detainee violence, I guess I should say, um, you know, disciplinary handling, um, of, uh, corrections officers. Um, I think that also is political because it's very unclear if the Adams administration is going to, you know, put in a DOC commissioner who is like Chiraldi, who sort of comes from a progressive ish academic camp, um, Mm. that wouldn't really seem to fit with his brand of politics. Um, and if so, then I would imagine that the sort of issues around, uh, correction officer discipline that activists have, um, raised over the years and that the monitor has raised would not be addressed. Thank you. Yeah. It seems, um, there are still a lot of questions because we do have a new administration coming in shortly, whoever it may be, uh, George Joseph from WNYC and Gothamist. Thank you so much for coming on, and I hope you have a great day. And and uh, thank you for your reporting, too. <laughs> thank you, Katie. Thank you, Harry. Appreciate the opportunity. It's fun to be here. Always. Thank you, Joy. So we've got another interview that's also about the sort of uh, death, sometimes despair, that does not usually make the front pages. Let's jump right in. So we're joined now by Maurizio Guerrero who's a contributor to Documented New York, uh, formerly the New York Bureau Chief for Notamex, and uh, is presently doing a series of pieces on a uh, Isaac Rauch Immigration Policy Reporting Fellowship about undocumented workers and construction in New York. The second piece that just went up is called The Secret Price of a Life, and it's about a construction worker in this luxury hotel and apartment building where you're talking like, $10,000 a square foot apartments and a worker who fell inside the building down a full floor was hospitalized and died. And uh, the developer was charged $12,000 and five, $12,500. So, you know, a square foot and a quarter uh, for this person's death. Uh, Rizzio, will you fill us in a little on this story and the work you're doing and, and why I have to say this person and uh, for all the reporting you've done, we don't even know, you know, 
if this was a man or a woman, if this person was in fact undocumented or any of that, they're literally just a person who died. Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, just a clarification, OSHA in August um, last month, um, they they find these, these companies as well, the, the, the construction companies, the contractors, uh, with $28,000. Um, but the investigation is not closed yet, um, so they can contest this this amount as it usually happens. So we don't know, what, you know, what uh, if they're gonna end up paying this this fine, and we don't know either if they're gonna end up paying the twelve thousand um, dollar fine that you mentioned uh, earlier that was imposed by the Department of Buildings of New York. So so you know they um, they impose the fines, but you know they can be appealed. Um, so the difficulty to report this story was that we don't know anything about this worker apart than uh, you know the basic information that he died the day he what day, day he died uh, he was taken to the hospital um, but it's impossible to know because um, um, for example the Department of Buildings they say that they don't provide the information. Um, so we we filed um, information request. Um, they dated the, the the they said that they would provide us with the with the information about this worker on on July and then they push back the date for release this information to September 23rd and then OSHA said that since the investigation is ongoing um, they cannot release any information the Department of Investigation of New York said um, since it was not a criminal case they could not release the information so this is so to speak the tragedy that that workers suffer in construction industry that we don't know the real number of people who died um, in construction sites oft until after two two years later when the Bureau of Labor Statistics they, they publish um, a report of the consolidated tally of people that died. Um, so, so the differences between the the, the tallies, the, the preliminary tallies uh, counts of the Department of Building and OSHA, and the final consolidated tally of the Bureau of Labor Statistics is very large. For example, the the last number that we have, the last consolidated figure that we have, is from 2019, and we're talking about 60 people that died in construction construction sites in New York State. Um, while um, OSHA just just tallied eight um, person that died um, that year, that year, and and then uh, New York City just twenty six. Um, so so the rest of the people there's no information about them in in this the case of the worker that died in the Amman residences that, that the case that we focused on. Um, we at least know, um, you know, that this person that there was someone that died there. Um, but yeah, we don't know the age, we don't know the sex, we don't know um, the nationality, ethnicity, and and if they were undocumented. So it's impossible to know, according to advocates, what's going on really on the construction industry. And so therefore, it's impossible to you know to issue regulations, laws that could protect these people. So so yeah, that's that's the basic situation. In, in any big development, we're talking here about a, a luxury building on Fifth Avenue with two major developers involved, I believe. With the financing, you have a general contractor, you have dozens of subcontractors. There's also sort of the question of, of who you'd be holding responsible in all those layers and, and different companies. Like, how does that tend to work? Is there any one party who, when these accidents happens, tends to be held responsible? Or does this just allow all of them to continuously 
pass the buck around a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, that's the situation. The, the, the issue is that um, the, prop, the owners of the property, they are never held to account. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't make really any sense because, for example, if you need to repair your home and you hire someone, at the end, you're going to be responsible for a worker that dies in your property. Well, that's not the case with the real estate industry or the construction industry in New York. The people that end up paying the consequences so far are the contractors and the subcontractors. And there has been just two cases in Manhattan, in the history of Manhattan, in the recent history of Manhattan, of um, criminal charges imposed to companies and, and to the people working for these companies that were found responsible of the workers that died there in these places, just two cases. And the, and the, the fine that the companies paid is uh, $10,000. That's the maximum penalty that, that they can pay. And then the people that went to jail um, the people convicted were Latinos, uh, mid-level managers. So people that were, you know, just, I would say, you know, like obeying orders and following instructions. So, so at the end, you know, there's not even a reputational cost for, for the, the, the millionaire and billionaire developers of this property who at the end end up, you know, like raising tons of millions of, of dollars off of this property and, and, and they don't pay any consequence. And, and the, I think the main issue is as well, uh, since we don't know about these, these deaths, um, so since they, they are hidden, so to speak, from, from the public view, um, um, it's impossible for advocates, for example, um, to organize demonstrations in, in front of the building, to demand accountability, and it's impossible for the workers themselves and the families then um, um, to ask for reparation, compensations, because they don't have, you know, the public opinion traction, you know, that it's needed in many of these cases for, for people to, to have some accountability or to have some, you know, some measure of justice after, after these, these things happen. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, um, we don't know a lot about, you know, who, who these people are and what happens after they die and, you know, if their companies are, you know, um, assume responsibility for, for their deaths. So, Maurizio, I'm curious if you know, um, at least in the, in the case of um, the two stories of yours that I read of construction worker deaths, where they were employed through, was it through what's known as a body shop, which I know there's a bill now in the city council to regulate them to some degree, and that's where non-union workers can go and like a subcontractor, or is it also maybe in smaller construction sites, like a day laborer site where people know that they can go and pick up crews of people, you know, I, I live in Woodside and we have a very popular street there. So if you could explain a little bit about where the workers are coming from. Yeah, they were hired apparently by the subcontractor, um, which is, you know, the norm, at least, you know, in, in the big buildings um, in Brooklyn, Manhattan and Manhattan. Um, um, so, so there were at the end the ones that are paying the fines as well. Well, the contractors as well were fined in in the two cases. Um, so, but they're you know small companies run by twenty something or high, uh, that uh, have like twenty something or so workers. Um, so, th so they're small. So at the end they're paying the prices for you know decisions that were taking you know high high up in the in the in the um, yeah, in this chain of, of interest and private interest. Um, so I think that that's, that's a problem at the end. So since, 
you know, the real estate developers, the, the people that are, have the money and are making the, you know, important decisions about the, the construction sites and, and, you know, how they run and how they operate, uh, they are not paying any consequences. So, you know, they don't feel you know, obliged or pressured by, by public opinion to, to, to change their ways. So, so they're selecting, you know, as usual. And then since the fines are so low, even for, you know, smaller companies, relatively small, small companies, like 20 or something employees, uh, you're talking about, you know, $12,000 that could be more or less easily absorbed as a, as a business cost. So, so yeah. Yeah. As if it's almost like a, the way some delivery companies pay in parking tickets as part of their operating costs. This is just the fine, uh, just the cost of doing business for some construction companies who are building billion-dollar and multi-billion-dollar projects. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and and at the end, um, for example, in cases of injuries or deaths, um, all these companies usually they have insurance. Um, so, so the insurance kicks in as soon as someone dies and it's, uh, they are automatically paid the family. Um, but after that, the families can seek a civil, can file a civil lawsuit to, to try to get some civil compensation, you know, if it's demonstrated that there was um, some kind of, of you know, recklessness or violation of, or safety of safety regulations on the part of, of contractors and subcontractors. But many of these people, they don't do that because they are intimidated by the employers, um, you know, because they're undocumented, um, they could be deported. And people are desperate because generally the, the you know the, the people that died in construction sites are um, the breadwinners, the, the men uh, you know that support the family. Um, so the families cannot you know have the luxury to say you know we don't want your money now because we're going to sue you because you know we we are entitled to have like a larger compensation, economic compensation. So they accept like you know, as they told me, like, like almost anything, you know, that is offered to them in these cases, because they just need the money right away, because sometimes they have as well, not just to support the household here in New York, but, but probably to have to send money back, back to their countries as well. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's a very, very horrible situation for, for many of the victims of injuries and, and, and especially deaths in, in construction sites in New York. Can you talk for a minute about the role that unions are playing here to try and protect some of these workers and how effective or not uh, those have been at this point? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think, well, the unions could play a bigger role for sure in protecting undocumented workers. What I understand happens is that it's very difficult for undocumented workers to join a union, a construction um, industry union, because these companies, these um, the unions depend a lot on the on big contracts from the state, and and from the federal government. And as I understand, um, they, uh, they they have to prove, you know, the, the burden of proof for them for their workers is higher than than if they're working in in a in a private um, in a private project. Um, so so it's difficult for them to have undocumented workers, I understand, if they want to have the, you know, the, they want to participate in the larger projects of, of um, from the government and, and the state. So, so yeah, I think, um, 
yeah, um, there should be a way, you know, to get around these this, these issues for for undocumented workers to be more protected. But as as far as I know, it's just the you know the community, the grassroots organizations that are doing a great job trying to to bring accountability to this industry for undocumented workers and and for the day laborers that you know people that are you know are just picking up from the streets literally you know to to do some some jobs. And do you want to talk about this uh, this new law uh, that FAQ guest uh, Jessica Ramos uh, was a sponsor of, and I think uh, Carmen De La Rosa in the Assembly, uh, the Governor Cuomo sign. Uh, remember that guy back in February um, that, that does create uh, a database uh, that's supposed to come online by the end of this year. Um, Obviously, we'll see how that's implemented, but but does that potentially change some of these dynamics, make it easier to hold companies accountable, or, or is this just sort of one more sort of small progression in the same story that those of us who've been following this, you know, end up re reporting or reading about, you know, every every few months, uh, sort of continuously. Yeah, I asked well both of uh, Jessica Ramos and and Carmen de la Rosa about you know what would happen to the to the registry when it when when it is implemented, if this would be a game changer, so to speak, for for construction workers, and they were kind of reluctant about you, you know what the future you know would would look will look like for for construction workers in terms of the registry. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a great step you know for people to know as they call it in real time you know who's dying and in what circumstances and if they were undocumented or not the nationality the ethnicity so on and so forth um, it, that's the first step to bring accountability to this industry that has like very little accountability especially for you know for these more vulnerable workers. Um, even you know for for um, advocates to go as I said you know to 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 demand in a public demonstration outside a building to to demand accountability um, because well that has proven for example there's academic research that points to the fact that um, when when companies are so to speak shamed or exposed in their wrongdoings other companies you know try to avoid these these exposures um, because well it's very costly for them to be um, to be linked to the death of a worker, especially if, you know, if there were like safety violations or um, or if there were hiring undocumented workers um, in the first place. Um, um, so so I think th this would be a, a great step, but we don't know, as you mentioned, how well it's going to be implemented. It depends on the budget they allocate um, in, in the legislature. It depends as well on the office of the new governor, um, how it's going to be implemented and how public this will be. Um, if all the information is going to be, you know, automatically uploaded and available to anybody that can um, search that database. I think that's the intention. But um, as I said, both Jessica Ramos and, and Carmen de la Rosa were very reluctant to say if this is going to be, you know, like, um, you know, night and day, um, so to speak, for, for workers. Mauricio, uh, you know, it's always difficult for journalists because we're reporting out things and we don't necessarily know how to fix these issues. But um, what do you see when you've been reporting are some solutions to this? Is it more accountability for construction companies? Is it heftier fines for developers? I mean, I guess the goal is to that they'll never get fined because there won't be those deaths. But can you speak a little bit about those solutions? 
Well, I think the first piece is to know what happens. So the registry is a great first step. Uh, for sure, if it's implemented correctly, um, that would be very important. The, the other piece is that um, the real estate developers, they have to be fine. They have to be held responsible for what's going on in their properties. At the end, as I said, there are the ones that are making millions. Um, so far, um, in, in the, just the two cases in Manhattan, there's just been, you know, like Latinos being, being sent to prison. Um, so, so, you know, if there's no um, consequences um, for, for these, these real estate developers, um, nothing will change. And as well, um, what kind of consequences we're talking about? Uh, obviously, you cannot change a corporation. You cannot um, send a corporation to jail, but um, you can find it, you know, heftily. And what, hap- what happens is that the, the maximum penalty, as I mentioned, is $10,000 if they are found like criminally liable for the death of a worker. So... Th- uh, there's a bill as well in the Senate um, um, that, um, that that would that would increase the penalties, the financial penalties for companies that are found to be uh, criminally responsible for the death of our workers. And we're talking about half a million dollar uh, dollars, uh, the maximum fine. So I think that would be as well that would serve more of a deterrent for companies, you know, to break the laws, to violate, you know, safety regulations, and and those would be, you know, initial steps you know, to try to correct all these wrongdoings that, that we see, you know, as, um, in a systematic way in, in this industry. Do you want to talk for a bit about the uh, scaffold law? New York has this sort of unique law about gravity-related construction accidents, and most construction deaths involve gravity, you know, people falling often from a great height. Um, and there's a law here that creates liability on all those accidents. The construction industry hates it. Uh, the people at the Manhattan Institute hate it. They say it actually disincentivizes safety because there's nothing you can do within the law that, that, that mitigates your risk as a, a developer. And they've been lobbying to change it uh, for, for, for many years. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to be one of the only protections in some sense, that the, these workers have. And I, I just love it if you could explain that a bit and share some of your thoughts on, on, on how that works in this mix of issues. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's been a, a campaign, as you mentioned, Harry, that is going on for at least a decade, you know, of developers and the construction industry in general, you know, to do away with this, with this law, a scaffold law. And one of the arguments is that, is, is that New York is the only state that has this law. Um, so, you know, it doesn't make New York, according to what they say, competitive in terms of, you know, of construction uh, costs um, compared to other states. Um, but well, at the end is New York and everybody wants to be in New York City, I guess. So um, but the irony is that um, if you see the figures, New York State and New York City in particular, they have higher rates of, of construction workers dying than other states. So it's not that, you know, this law makes New York especially safe for workers, um, but it would be it would be way on um, more dangerous for workers if this, this law is eliminated. Um, and well, um, for the third part of the of this um, investigative report, that I've written for documented, it's about the scaffold law. So I, I, I spoke with uh, several construction workers, um, uh, all of them undocumented, and all of them told me stories 
of being injured or or knowing people working with people that died after falling from a scaffold in a construction site that didn't follow um, safety measures. Um, so so you know all the people that work in construction industry they have you know anecdotes or they suffer themselves injuries because you know the scaffolds were not you know properly secured. Um, so what this law says is basically that employer has the responsibility to provide the protective equipment and the measures for workers to be safe. Um, when they, what the industry is arguing is that sometimes workers are, you know, reckless, you know, they want to finish quickly the job, so they don't use the harness and so on and so forth. So they want to say that in some cases, um, workers should be held responsible for their own, you know, injuries, um, which is, it doesn't make really any sense because, you know, they're in charge at the end of the work site, of the workplace, and they should be in charge of the security and the safety measures of the workplace. And, and it doesn't make sense either because, if we're talking about undocumented people, um, as I said, they could be easily uh, intimidated, and and that happens. And as well with the with the workers that I talk to, they frequently tell me uh, told me about um, about these instances of you know like people offering money because of an injury. They knew that they could get more money, you know, if you know the rules, the procedures, the standards were followed, or and if they sued, but 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 you know, I mean, they just need to take the money. So. So it, it would open, a, you know, a horrible door for for abuse uh, in an industry that is full full of abuse already. So Maurizio has been doing this reporting. We should mention for Documented New York, which you can find online at documentedny.com. It's a, a nonprofit news site. I am a, a subscriber or a supporter, however you say it. Um, it's dedicated solely to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. The two stories he has out so far, with this third one on the scaffold while coming, are The Secret Price of a Life and Undocumented Construction Worker Falls to His Death and Developers Deny It. And in the time we have left, I'm, helping, I'm hoping that you can tell us just, just a little about that story as well. Um, yeah, it was the case of um, um, of a worker that died um, two years ago um, in Brooklyn, um, and you know the struggle that a family has to go through to get any kind of compensation, um, any kind of money, and as well um, the you know how uh, difficult it is for these families that depend often on these workers um, to just to get by, you know, after a worker dies, because even if, you know, if all goes well and they get, you know, the insurance money and afterwards they have a, they sue uh, successfully the companies and they get some kind of compensation, that could take years. Uh, I mean, we're talking about, you know, more than two years and, and the, the, the mother of the construction worker that died uh, has not received any money yet. And it is uh, as well, I think this case was very revealing because it showed as well how difficult it is um, for the district attorneys uh, um, and the prosecutor to, to prosecute these crimes because um, according to what they told me um, in the Manhattan District Attorney Office, attorney office is that um, 
Um, there's no there's no trace of these workers often working there for a construction site for a for a specific contractor or so or subcontractor. There are no documents. There's no registry. They are paid under the table. So so for them, for a prosecutor, it's, it's very difficult to prove just that the worker was working was hired actually by 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 an employer. And the employer, you know, as crazy as it sounds, often they they say. I don't know what this guy was doing here. I, I've never seen him before. Probably was, you know, brought by a friend. Um, so, you know, they, they just like, you know, literally, you know, just, you know, look the other way and they say, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then um, if you have witnesses as well, the witnesses probably will be undocumented, probably will be as well intimidated by the employer. And, you know, an undocumented person. The last thing they they want to do is to is to to talk with a with a prosecutor, with a law enforcement agent, officer. So so they naturally you know shy away from 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 this investigation. So so it's I mean according to what they told me in the in the district attorney district attorney office, um, is the perfect crime setup. You know because there are no traces and and yeah there's no way just to just to prove that a worker died. Uh, because of the recklessness of uh, of the employer. So, so that worker does have a name. This was a young man named Eric Mendoza, who was 23 years old. He was working on a luxury apartment building with gorgeous harbor and Manhattan views. And he was uh, replacing bricks around a rooftop water tower, according to your reporting. And then he fell 13 stories to a uh, concrete courtyard. It wasn't clear if he uh, if he slipped, lost his balance, was hit by a brick, but but he fell. Um, and as the story mentions, you know there, there are hundreds of young people, young men mostly, who uh, come to New York to do this sort of work. You can do it without uh, without being documented. You you can make a fair amount of money. Uh, often you're not paying taxes on all that money because the pay is under the table. And all this I think begs the question about whether or not there's a way to uh, protect these workers without, at the same time, cutting many of them off from, from this work. And I, I'd just be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, well, in the case of Eric Mendoza, um, for example, it was established by the Department of Buildings um, that there was a um, there was a um, security failure on the part of the of the employer. So that's why he fell uh, 13 floors. Um, so that that's in the report. But still, two years afterward, um, you know, the, the penalty and the fines and the civil lawsuit is being contested by by the by the um, contractor. Um, they're con they're contesting even the OSHA fines. Um, so, so they're not accepting any responsibility. So I think a first step to protect these workers is to, you know, like, uh, you know, try to link the reports to what actually happens. If, if, if an inspector already established, you know, that there was wrongdoing on the part of an employer, well, the, it should be easier for people to get some kind of compensation and, and to, to, um, to apportion responsibility on on these um, on these employers and contractors as well. Um, on the bigger question about you know protecting undocumented workers, I think a, a, a good answer would be um, the thing that you suggested before, Harry. That that is, unions should be more open, and it should be easier for unions to get you know large 
contracts from the state and, and, and you know, federal government and federal state, uh, it should be easier for them even, you know, having undocumented workers, um, yeah, working for them. And as well, um, there's a lot, there's an issue of political will. Um, these issues have, have to be investigated as, as, um, as, as criminal matters. Uh, and as I said, in the history of Manhattan, there have just been two cases of successful criminal prosecutions um, of, um, of, con of contractors uh, found criminally liable for, for the deaths of, of workers. So we need to have more, a more active um, district attorney office, attorney's office in, in, in New York, for sure. That would help as well to bring some accountability and to protect these, these very vulnerable workers. Maritza, thank you so much for uh, joining us and, and taking the time. We appreciate it and uh, hope you come back on. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thanks so much for the time. It was great. Um, and yeah, um, we'll be in touch then. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute of Poverty, Policy, and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. A special thank you to our guest, George Joseph of WNYC and Gothamist, and Mauricio Guerrero reporting for Documented NY, and to Adam Chimera, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. And thank you for listening. Be safe, be cool, and be kind, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>